the QMC Board and Collar Series for EMS Professionals welcomes you to Excuse My Medic, the podcast version of an MCI with Gary Harvat, Chuck Humphrey, and Ed Marasco. Excuse My Medic takes a unique look at today's emergency medical service with news and information, opinionated discussions, lively talk, sporadic jabs, and even a few belly laughs from our world of emergency medical services. Excuse My Medic is brought to you by Quick Med Claims, a national leader in emergency medical service revenue cycle management and reimbursement consulting. Now, hang on to the bench seat and tighten your lap belt as these old guys from EMS Past take you on a Code 3 ride without touching the brakes. You've had the disclaimer, and if you're still brave enough to stick it out, let's get started. Take it away, guys. Good day, everyone. My name is Gary Harvat. I'm from the client services team at QuickMed Claims, and welcome to the Valentine's Day edition of Excuse My Medic. We're so glad you're here. Joining me, of course, are my great and esteemed colleagues. Gentlemen, Chuck, welcome. Chuck Humphrey from our business development team and Ed Maraska. Gentlemen, say hi. Hey, how are you? Uh, good to see everyone. Happy Valentine's Day for all you who are in love out there. Uh, it's a good day to be alive. Yep. Good morning and uh, happy Valentine's Day for me as well. I had an interesting one this morning, guys. I'm up to, uh, I have to look on the shelf here. I think Joyce left me eight cards in various locations, <laughs> including uh, hot chocolate here on my desk when I arrived this morning. So it's good to be me today on Valentine's Day. It, it sure is. And thank uh Ed needs to thank me because I got this text this morning from uh, Ed's wife saying, are you in the office yet? And thank goodness I'm an early riser because uh, <laughs> she she came bearing gifts this morning and I had to let her into Ed's office before she got here. So Chuck, what's new with you? Well, um, hey, I was on overnight travel, so I didn't get anything. <laughs> I got a hotel room by myself. But, Good uh, for you, Chuck. No, I uh, <laughs> drove through a little thunder snow last night. It was interesting. Um, my, you know what, I, I, in typical nerd EMS fashion, I just did a really good um, FEMA course on response to bombing incidents. Uh, it was well done. Um, former uh, New Jersey, uh, a Northern Jersey SWAT guy and uh, tactical medic from down in Texas. Spent two days, about 16 hours uh, for Con Ed, but I got to tell you, it was surprisingly a well done course. So, uh, like I said, I'm an EMS nerd for sure, but it it was just uh, well well handled, great information, uh, and a little scary when you think about what could happen. But uh, really cutting edge stuff. Enjoyed it a lot. Great. That that does sound very interesting. So uh, you know, Ed had a, a very nice his having a very nice Valentine's Day. Um, my birthday was last week, and I just like to tell you a little bit about my birthday. I know it's all it doesn't. I don't don't want to make this about me, but I need to tell you about my birthday. So uh, I was in Connecticut for my birthday last Wednesday, February fifth. For those of you sending cards and letters, um, I I was uh, at one point I had to go to a board meeting for one of our clients, which was all well and fine. Um, but I found myself around six o'clock at night en route to the board meeting, kind of feeling sorry for myself. Like your birthday, you're here in this rental car, you're somewhere you don't know anybody. So I thought I needed to pick myself up. So I pulled into the Dunkin' Donuts. I got myself a, a coffee and, and they had a donut. So I got a nice donut. I brought it back out to my rental car, had the music playing for a few minutes. I was relatively close to where the board meeting was. And I started eating the donut and the donut was stale. Oh, no. So, uh, you know, I, I was still feeling sorry for myself. So I said, you know, what do you do when you're kind of feeling down in the dumps? What, well, well, you call your, you call your spouse. So I called my wife and I said, Hey, just want to check in with you. Just thought I'd hear a friendly voice before I go to this meeting. I'm kind of feeling a little down. I'm here by myself on my birthday and just wanted to just touch base, check in with you. And I got, you should really try to suck it up. It's your 63rd <laughs> birthday. You'll be home tomorrow. We'll celebrate then. <laughs> oh, gotta love that Terry, man. She tells and, it like it is. Um, so, uh, needless to say, I sucked it up, went to the board meeting, it went fine, came home. But. 
Uh, yep. She's not going to approve of you telling that story, nope. by the way. I'm sure she'll listen to this episode, too. So, uh, Stale cupcake and no love. No love. Oh, no wow. love. That's the way it goes. Well, listen, uh, it's good to have both of you here with me today. And I, I really, as always, enjoy doing these these episodes with you. And again, we tend to be, uh, this ep- these uh, programs tend to be trending upward. So, we're so glad and thankful to our listeners for uh for taking part in this, downloading these podcasts, and uh, we'll continue to do them as long as you folks continue to listen to them. But we do have a more serious subject today, and I've asked Ed to do the heavy lifting on this. Uh, For those of you that are out there, especially in the air medical community, you've probably heard the word surprise medical billing. It's all over the news. It's it's in D.C., and Ed has been... um, uh, had the opportunity to be part of the Air Ambulance Advisory Committee that's investigating and, and looking at uh, the issue of surprise medical billing. And I've asked Ed if he would be kind enough to just give us uh, a legislative update on where we are. And also, Ed, your opinion on where you think this is going to go. I know this is a bit of a crystal ball right now, and there's a lot of gray areas, but uh, you know, you tend to be the You've, you've been the resident expert in this area for many years. And so uh, if you could share what you know with our listeners, uh, I know they'd greatly appreciate it, as would we. Yeah, Gare, thanks. Thanks a bunch. And uh, it, you're right. It's been, this has been uh, the last, particularly the last few weeks, maybe the last two months, this issue sort of resurfaced again. As many of you will recall, going back uh, a couple of years, this issue got on the radar screen. And, uh, and actually legislation passed a couple of years ago caused the formation of the Air Ambulance uh, Patient Billing Advisory Committee, which had its first meeting um, right after the first of the year um, down at the U.S. Department of Transportation. I spent a couple of days down there at the meetings, um, and it was interesting to hear the dialogue uh, because this is, uh, this is a huge issue, and there are lots of constituency groups at the table. So the advisory committee is made up of a number of individuals uh, representing consumers, the insurance side of the, the of the ledger, um, obviously providers and suppliers, um, government agencies, several of the government agencies, including DOT, um, uh, as well as CMS, were, were are part of the committee. And then there were a number of us, probably maybe 15 or so, who were invited to testify at the first uh, at the first meeting. And so it was interesting to sit through the testimony of various folks, and it was providing background. For the committee as they um, begin their deliberations and their their task is to come up with a couple things first of all it's to address uh, issues of transparency how do the how do we let the patients know in advance uh, what to expect from a bill standpoint um, there's also uh, the, the committee was charged with looking at whether or not those bills the air ambulance bills should be split should should they be billing separately for the aviation component of the services and the clinical component um, and then of course the big issue is how do we set rates that are fair for everybody involved? And so it was great to great to sit through some of that. And just to recap, sort of give you a frame the frame the issue a little bit. When we talk about surprise medical bills or balanced billing, sort of two separate issues. And so one of the folks who testified um, is Jack Hoadley from uh, from Georgetown, and he's been actively involved uh, in this issue and in, in healthcare issues in general for a long time. And he did a great job of sort of framing up. Uh, uh, the two challenges that we face. One is the issue of a surprise medical bill, which uh, is any bill sent by a medical provider to a patient for an amount larger than expected. And so where this comes in is, um, you know, you don't, particularly in our situation in, in emergency medical services, oftentimes the patients have no, they're not thinking about the bill at that point in time. They're calling 911 or they're seeking emergency transport. Maybe they were in a car accident and so forth. And so the last thing they're thinking about is the bill, and they probably have no, for the most part, unless you've been transported before, you have no idea, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, $200 or $2,000. And so the idea of getting a bill that is far above what your expectations might be. So that's the concept of surprise medical bill. And then the second component is balance billing, which is any bill sent by a medical provider to a patient uh, for the balance remaining after the insurer makes payments and after normal patient costs sharing and deductibles are applied. So in this circumstance, and we talk about this often, and we talk about this with our clients quite a bit, are you in network with the insurance company or out of network? If you're in network, then typically you would bill and receive payment from the insurance company for that prescribed amount that's in your contract. 
Um, and then the patient might be responsible for, uh, you know, whatever their copayment is, uh, as well as if they if they have a deductible in their particular plan, has that deductible for the period been satisfied? And they may owe an additional amount based on whether or not the deductible has been satisfied or not. The real issue is when the provider's out of network, and um, um, and the uh, provider suppliers expecting full payment of the charge, regardless of what insurance pays, and so then the patient ends up with a with a ginormous responsibility after uh, whatever the insurance is paid. And so, what's this all about? Well, to be honest with you, surprise medical billing and balance billing are just really symptoms of a larger disease that we have in the healthcare system, and that larger disease is called cost shifting. And cost shifting comes from uh, a place where we know for certain types of or certain care and service that we provide, certain situations, we don't get paid adequately. We know that Medicare does not pay adequately for ambulance transport. Um, you know, the fee schedule was put in place back in, um, I think the final year of implementation was 2001 or 2002. You know, we went through the negotiated rulemaking process with Medicare back in the late 90s. And the legislation, unfortunately, said that the annual increase in the fee schedule, once it was set, which was supposed to be set at base year cost a few years before the, when the process started, can only go up by the CPI minus 1%. So the CPI, Consumer Price Index, is an approximator for the cost of doing business. And so every year since then, for the last 18 plus years, um, the increase in the fee schedule has been at the Consumer Price Index minus 1%. So we know that we're behind the curve. We know that Medicare, and some would argue that at the time the fee schedule was set, it was below cost, particularly for ground providers. And it's gotten progressively worse over the last 18 to 20 years. So Medicare is not adequately reimbursing. Of course, with a few exceptions, Medicaid programs are not well-funded enough. And so we know the reimbursement that our, that our providers and suppliers out there get is well below. And for most agencies, those two combined represent somewhere between 50 and 60% of their patient population. So what are you left to do if you're not getting your costs reimbursed for 55 or 60% of the population that you serve? Well, you have to do what's called cost shifting. And so you charge commercial payers and others a higher amount so that you can make that up and make yourself whole as an agency and, and quite frankly, stay in business. And so this really, this larger issue, um, you know, is really where the rub is. Uh, is that you know cost shifting is something that finally has gotten on the, the commercial insurers' radar screen. And to be to be fair with them, you know they're in a battle too. So now there's a lot more competition on the commercial insurance side. And so what are people looking for? And it's no different than us here at QuickMed or even our ambulance suppliers and providers that are out there. We don't want an increase in our insurance premiums year over year. We just are in the process. In fact, I don't know if you. I hope you guys filled out your. Uh, your uh, uh, renewal forms. Today's the last day to uh, to sign up for QuickMed Insurance. Uh, you know, our HR vice president just came in and reminded me a little while ago. <laughs> of course, I'm a bad boy. I'm not. I haven't signed up yet, but I'm going to get to that right after this session. I promised her. But um, you know, look, we don't want a premium increase for our employees covering our employees. So we're always beating up the insurance company by keeping costs down. And how do they do that? Well, they have to. They have to always be looking at their cost and what they're paying the providers. So it's a <laughs> You know, it's a never-ending battle between providers, suppliers, insurers, employers who pay for insurance, and so on. So, uh, it's a tough situation. A lot of moving parts. And um, I, you, what brought this to a head is particularly um, uh, situations. And by the way, this is not initially a transport issue. This really started to surface in the hospital and physician side of the world. And that is, um, you know, you in good faith, you go to an in-network facility, hospital to get care because you're trying to follow the rules of your insurance company, you get there and um, you come to find that after the fact that yes, the, the hospital bill is in network and is going to be covered based on whatever the uh, plan uh, documents and, you know, say, but there's two or three physicians that took care of you. Maybe the radiologist or maybe the anesthesiologist, if you had surgery, there aren't in network and you get this giant bill. Um, in fact, this thing is, uh, it's, you know, I just read this article last week, the CEO of Envision Healthcare, which is a large physician staffing firm, um, just resigned last week. And, uh, you know, one of the surmises is there's been a lot of pressure on Envision because of their billing practices. And I'm not registering any judgment one way or another. Um, and then their active effort and the active effort of their ownership group, they're owned by a private equity firm, um, to lobby aggressively 
against the surprise billing legislation. There are several pieces that are out there. So this is a this is a far-reaching issue, well beyond medical transport. Unfortunately, we've gotten ourselves on the radar screen because as our bills, the cost size of our bills has gone up. Um, uh, the providers, uh, you know, trying to stay whole, and of course the insurance companies put that constant pressure to keep costs down. Uh, we bumped into each other on the transport side, particularly the air medical transport side. So the AAPB is going to continue to meet. It's got a six-month window to issue a report um, with recommendations on all those fronts I mentioned. And uh, in fact, there's a number of subcommittees that have just been formed. And uh, of course, QuickMed has been asked to serve uh, on one of those subcommittees. And so we're going to be uh, trying to help the committee in its deliberations along those lines. And here we are. Um, just in the last week, in fact, last Friday, um, there were several pieces of legislation that had been introduced last year uh, in Congress and um, had really not gotten any traction to address this problem. And uh, lo and behold, last week, things started to move again. So debates heated, uh, heated up a bit on, on these proposals, and um, a number of proposals were advanced out of committee last week. And so essentially, uh, let me just recap for you quickly. There's essentially three approaches to this thing. The House Energy and Commerce Committee, as well as the Senate Help Committee, um, and for those of you who aren't, uh, uh, aren't actively involved in government relations and that sort of thing, um, the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, um, have been advancing uh, a bipartisan uh, and, and White House-supported piece of legislation to address surprise medical billing. Um, for a number of years. That, that bill finally found its way out of committee. At the same time, the House Ways and Means Committee advanced the bill last week, um, which is similar in format. And then the third group is the House Education and Labor Committee. And so essentially, if you put these things side by side, you put these pieces of legislation side by side, there's a number of parameters that you need to evaluate them by. First of all, the concept of arbitration. So when the insurance company and the provider supplier don't agree on what the price ought to be, how does that get resolved? And so, um, you know, the provider side tends to be focused on um, baseball-style arbitration. We want to be able to get a third party in a room and say, here's what we're, here's what we're charging, here's what the, the median um, uh, in-network rate is, and we need some arbitrator to decide what the fair payment is for the services, whether it's a ground ambulance transport or whether it's an air medical transport, an emergency department bill, whatever the case may be. And so... The, uh, the HELP bill and the House Energy and Commerce Committee bill basically says that for any services that are above $750, which most ALS ambulance transports would be, um, and any air ambulance bill above $25,000, which these days is probably just about all of them with a few exceptions, some of those heavily subsidized programs maybe, um, that arbitration would be baseball style. Um, and it would you know be done over a period of thirty to, to ninety days. you know one side or another can raise a can raise an issue. Um, and so the House Ways and Means Committee um, uh, is proposing a two step process um, that requires again one party or the other to raise the issue and a third party arbitrator would come in. but it's going to be based on um, the median allowable rate. so there's some some limits maybe in the arbitration. And then the House Education and Labor Committee um, has a very similar component where it's um, anything, any bill over 750 or 25,000 for an ambulance claim would go into dispute resolution um, by a third party. So the arbitration pieces are pretty similar, sometimes limits, sometimes not limits. The real clinker is under the rate setting piece. So the help bill and the one supported by the White House is basically talking about um, going with median in-network rate for anything uh, uh, under $750 um, so that essentially we're going to be going with what the insurance company's in-network rate is primarily that the regional average would apply and create um, a rate range. So that creates lots of angst on the provider side. Of course, the insurance side of the, of the house really supports that because it places an, a cap right up front on what reasonable rates can be. And then um, the other two pieces of legislation, essentially, um, there's no set rates. Um, uh, for for out of network, and it would require uh, the parties to negotiate. So that's what the provider, you know, hospitals, physicians, ambulance services tend to tend to be more in favor of. And then the third provision is what's the deal with emergencies? And look, this is about the same for all these pieces of legislation. Essentially, it's trying to keep people who are truly in emergency situations from having to experience any out of pocket, out of network balance billing 
um, in any emergency circumstance because they don't have the ability to select. They're in a situation in extremis where they need help, and they really, um, it's not fair to, um, to ask them to pay a rate that they had no idea up front um, what the rate was going to be. So essentially, um, there's relief in emergency situations, which really drives back to those other issues, which is if you're not going to be able to bill patients anything out of pocket, any balance billing, whether the provider suppliers in network or out, then you're back to what's the rate, the in-network rate that's going to be applied to out-of-network providers in an emergency situation. And if there's a dispute in that rate, how do the providers and insurance companies resolve that dispute to make sure there's fair payment to both parties. And at any rate, all three pieces of legislation take the patient out of that equation, which is really what everybody wants. We want to get the patient out of the middle and really put the onus on uh, providers, suppliers, and insurance companies to come up with a solution. So uh, there's Medicare and Medicaid funding legislation that's due out. It basically has to be passed by the end of May um, to fund those programs for the coming year that have been sort of on hiatus, if you will. And so there's some sentiment that one of these pieces of legislation is going to find its way into that final bill that gets approved near the end of May. So uh, now, there's some school of thought that this is an election year and that Congress isn't going to want to touch this issue, but there's pretty good bipartisan support to take some action. So, you know, as we look forward, crystal ball-wise, um, I think we're going to be in the soup on this one. I think there's going to be some movement this summer one way or the other. Um, and of course, none of these, uh, in all these cases, any legislation is probably not going to be implemented till 2022, but I think we're going to know there's going to be a direction later on this summer of which direction we're headed. So um, we've got to keep our eyes open and, uh, and be ready. And I th think the bad news here is I don't think reimbursement's going up in any stretch of the imagination. So that's the bad news. Sorry to be that, to bring the bad news to light, but I think that's, that's where we are. And I was actually thinking that the, the election might push this along because I've heard a lot of, including from the White House, talking about this, you know, to especially coming out of the House because the House is up for a re-election right now that this might be a feel-good piece of legislation that they'll pin and say, look, we're trying to help the, the common man, which is truly the case. But, you know, I, I, I was kind of thinking as I've been listening and monitoring this that it's actually pushing it along rather than squelching it. But it's just my opinion. I, and, and Yeah, I agree. In fact, uh, you know, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but um, late in the afternoon on Wednesday, the, the president actually tweeted about um, the legislation and, and urged Congress to move forward and, and uh, send something to his desk that he's willing to sign. So the president's on board with some solution pretty quickly, rather, sooner rather than later. And with regard to arbitration, um, isn't a worry that it's going to bog down? You know, I, I'm thinking about all those ALJ cases <laughs> that backed up and, you know, you're waiting for five years to get a determinant. Um, if all this just dumps in, who's going to do that arbitration? You're going to get in private contractors. Uh, I don't know. That scares me. I know that there's a reasonable um, path for that and it makes sense, but the sheer volume potential um, kind of just frightens me. Uh, agree. I mean, you know, I think that's one of the big concerns. Now, there is in the uh, House Energy and Commerce and Health, Senate Health version, there is a limitation. So it, it says basically, at least in this current form, that um, a provider or an insurer cannot request arbitration um, within 90 days for the same service within 90 days of having just had an arbitration. So there's going to be some limits. So I suspect what might happen here is, is you know, once a, a provider and a payer go to battle over, let's say, a ground ambulance rate, um, that rate's going to be set, and that arbitration is going to come up with a new normal, whatever that whatever that rate is, ALS two or whatever um, CPT, <coughs> excuse me, CPT code we're talking about, and um, you know, hopefully, both ends of the spectrum won't keep going back to the well, um, you know, time and time again. And again, one version actually places a time limit on that. Some of the others don't. In fact, I don't think either the Ways and Means or the Educational Labor Committee actually put a limit on that. But hopefully we'll come up with a new normal and people will move forward with whatever that rate is. Ed, a question I had is, um, if, if it is as you're stating here and 2022 rolls around, will this change the landscape of the air medical industry? Are we going to see some uh, organizations... Um, dropping some of their aircraft, closing altogether? I, I, 
you know, I understand both sides here and, uh, but really wanted to get your input on that. Yeah, it's a great observation, Gene. And, and, and actually, you know, one of the things that got us, got us on the radar screen on the air medical industry is, you know, there was a GAO study back in 2019, which talked about the percentage of, uh, of air ambulance providers that are out of network. Um, and then it was in excess, almost 70%. So it was well in excess of half the claims, uh, and the providers are out of network. That number's already started to shift. So when we were at the Air Ambulance Patient Advisory Committee um, a couple of weeks back, um, one of the large national operators, air operators, was represented on the committee. Um, and he spoke several times about the fact that they have made a concerted effort to go in network. And so they've been actively working with insurance companies to become in network. And I think we've seen some of that even amongst our client base as well. Um, the downside is, uh, in that circumstance, not all the insurance companies have been welcoming of that transition. And so um, we've had issues with a couple of our clients in particular with local payers um, who we can't get to the table. Not even we can't get to the table to come to a fair number. We can't even get them to the table to talk with us and our clients. So um, I think you're going to see a push towards in-network. Um, I think that's probably the right thing to do, certainly for the patients. As long as those rates are fair, I think it could be good for the providers. You know, we still have this issue, and we talked about this the other day um, in a meeting that you and I were at on on um, on Saturday morning, actually, with one of our clients at a board meeting about, you know, what happens if you're out of network and that that bill goes to the pay or the check goes to the patient and the patient doesn't pay, they don't turn the the cash over right. to us. You know, what do you do with that? So I think it's going to force people in network. And, of course, the other thing that's got us on the radar screen is that there's been a tremendous proliferation of aircraft base sites and transports over the last 20 years. And so that would suggest to you that the economics of the industry are fairly favorable. Um, when the economics change and there's a downturn in reimbursement um, or some cap, um, I suspect you will see some rebalancing or um, – you know, rationalization of the market. You know, as you all know, and and we've talked about this over the years as well. There are some places that have 15 or 20 helicopters. They probably need four to serve the geography that they have. Now, by the same token, there's still parts of the country that, you know, are probably a little bit underserved. Not too many, but there's a few that don't have quick access to a good uh, air medical transport capability. And so, um, you hope that that's not where the decline is. I mean, uh, quite frankly, that's the concern. Well, Ed, you mentioned the fee schedule. You know, we've been talking a lot in our podcast about the cost of data collection on the ground ambulance side. Um, and I just had that question come up last night in the meeting about that. Why do we have to do this? And just, you know, I'll throw in a reminder to everybody again, on the ground side, the hope is, is as we report our costs, it will finally shine a spotlight on how underfunded we really are. So I just want to remind everyone the importance of getting this thing right uh, and I know this is a colossal pain in the keister. Uh, none of us want to do it. It's, you know, there's a lot of consternation about separating fire and, you know, EMS labor costs. And I just sat through another CMS webinar last week, another one coming up next week. But we've got to get this right. If we get this right, it's, it's going to, I think, it's going to be a startling revelation to our lawmakers that, EMS on the ground side is very underfunded and it may help the entire argument. That's, that's my hope. So I just want to throw another, you know, kind of infomercial in there is we've been talking a lot about it. And this is why, because I really think this is ground zero for the next, um, what I want to say battle in the, the funding, uh, uh, the funding exercise here. And hopefully we can get that fee schedule tweaked where it really makes some sense. Yeah, Chuck, great, great point. And, and I'll tell you something that's, I think this is going to come to the air side too, because in, in at least two of those, two versions of the legislation um, that's currently out there, there's reference to um, transparency and um, uh, payments related to cost. And of course, you know, in the air medical transport side, we, we haven't dealt with the cost issue yet. Um, and I also believe, um, in fact, one of the things I testified on at the first AAPB um, was about the, the po prospects of segregating out um, air and, uh, you know, aviation services and, and clinical services cost so that there can be cost-based reimbursement for those things. As you know, that's a little complicated depending on the structure of the program. But I would not be shocked if one of the recommendations from the committee um, uh, to the DOT and to, of course, CMS 
um, in about six months or so is that the air ambulance side be also subject to cost reporting so that there can be um, an adequate accounting of what the cost is and there can be some reimbursement in relation to cost. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, we're putting our head in the sand if we don't think that um, the constituency groups want to understand the cost of doing business. And on the ground side, it's great news for us that while it is, like you said, a proverbial pain in the keister, I think the upside is potential. Uh, the upside potential for this is tremendous to help us get adequate reimbursement mm-hmm. on the ground side. I agree. Good. Well, Ed, thank you for that. Uh, the information, very, very valuable. And uh, I've said this before, if you could be kind enough to just even keep us updated uh, over as this evolves, it would be greatly appreciated. So thank you and uh, hope to hear more and hope to hear more positive things that work for both sides. Yeah, my pleasure. And um, actually, I'm working on a little piece for uh, one of the upcoming blogs here in the next month or so, uh, and probably be right after the next Air Air Ambulance Advisory Committee meeting. We'll put some information out in the blog um, about what's happening in the discussion. So yeah, we'll certainly try and keep our listeners up to speed. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll take that blog and turn it into a podcast for everybody as well, too. So Anyway, well, that was pretty heavy subject matter, but important subject matter nonetheless. So uh, let's move, guys. Uh, Anybody got any good news? Chuck, how about you? Yeah, well, look, I want to shout out to um, an organization in Maryland um, that I have been friends with for over 20 years, um, the Abingdon Fire Company in Abingdon, Maryland, about to celebrate their 95th anniversary as a volunteer organization. Uh, they have some paid staff supplementing their EMS, but I got to tell you guys, you we all know here uh, have 95 years of continuous service to a community, and and this is an excellently run organization. Uh, I have um, sat in meetings where I've just been in awe that they uh, accomplish what they do. Uh, this is a eat off the floor station, uh, fabulous uh, pieces of apparatus great people, the latest in equipment, and most of all, the biggest of hearts to serve their community. So I just want to say shout out, guys. Great job. Let's hope it's another 95 to go. (laughs) Great. Oh, bravo. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations to all the great folks there. And I surely hope that community realizes what a gem they have, because that's uh, quite the statement to be around for 95 years, but to manage their operation as, uh, as they do is truly, truly um, much, much credit to them. Yeah. Hey, Chuck, what was it like uh, when they did the, uh, the inauguration uh, of, of the company? Um, uh, I'm sure you were there. <laughs> um, thanks yeah, a lot, buddy. Yeah, Chuck, tell us. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Even though I just had a birthday, um, it, I think that at least one of the panel of this call is a little older than I am. Am I correct? Hey, hey, listen, this is between the two of you. Don't try to drag me into this. I don't have any dog in this fight. Uh, yeah. Well, let's put it this way. They weren't burning fuel. They were burning horses. <laughs> it was horse feed to make the cart go. So, <laughs> Actually, in 1920, they probably had... They probably had combustion engine then, so they might have started with that. Some of the 1895 guys, I think, uh, were horse drawn, but these guys, uh, these guys probably started out with something that ran on fuel. I think. Yeah, that's a oh. wonderful story. Oh my goodness! Well, thank you for sharing that, Chuck. We really appreciate that information. No, congratulations to the good folks at Abingdon. Yeah. Ed, how about you? Anything? Yeah, I got a great one. I've been I've been sitting on this one since right before Christmas, and and I got to tell you this one, this one really got my attention. So I was reading an article <clears throat> about um, Detroit first responders, and this was this was maybe a week before Christmas that this occurred. Um, so uh, first responders in Detroit uh, responded to uh, a scene of an overdose where one woman and three men were all unresponsive, and actually the nine one one call came. Um, from two young girls, um, one eight and one ten, and unfortunately, one of the victims um, was their mother. And so, of course, the first responders show up, the fire department and EMS show up, and and unfortunately, there was a there was a bad outcome. And so, um, you know, the girl's mother died, and uh, one of the fire lieutenants 
uh, Jeff Gaglio, who was involved, um, you know, talked about being at the scene. And a lot of those folks, you know, have young families. And so it hit, it hit close to home and they realized that they had to do something. So they approached the Detroit Public Safety Foundation and they said, um, we've got to respond to this need. So unfortunately, the two young girls um, had to move in with their father um, who didn't really have the right housing for them. Of course, um, you know, it sounds as though they really they didn't have a lot um, at the time of the transition. So, you know, darn our wonderful public safety folks um, start a drive in the community and, and raise donations, including gift cards, Christmas presents for the, for the girls. Um, they even went to a local realtor who uh, found a, um, a four-bedroom house because I guess the dad's home was not big enough for the girls to be there um, with really, really reasonable rent. Um, and they created out of a very, very bad situation, um, which obviously you can never erase, but they created a, you know, as best as could be a good Christmas experience and, uh, and took care of these two young girls moving forward and, and sort of they become now kind of a part of the public safety family there in Detroit. So kudos to the gang in Detroit for that. Um, as you know, we see things all the time in our business um, that just will break your heart. And here was a case where uh, folks stepped up and did something fabulous for, uh, for these two young girls. Yeah, kudos to them, and boy, I sure wish the news could could uh, report on stories such as this uh, more so than some of the the excuse my French crap we see day to day. But uh, uh, that's a great story, very heartwarming, and I think you know this probably happens. Uh, you know, Detroit, we know about, but I, I'm betting in many communities across the country good things like this happen, maybe not to this degree where there's a, uh, a terrible incident, but you know, the fire departments out there, whether they're, you know, whether they're pulling, putting out house fires or, or, you know, helping pump out flooded basements. I mean, these guys are just always there. And, you know, in front of every organization, most all of these organizations names is the word volunteer, which never ever ceases to amaze me. Never, ever just amazing in this day and age to, for people to do that. I, it's hard for me to believe they even get it, can get out of bed to, to go to something. I know, you know, that's, it's challenging for us some days just to get up and, and put our feet in the floor and get ready and come to work, let alone to be awoken in the middle of the night uh, to get out and do these things. Um, great, great story. Thanks for sharing that, Ed. So uh, we've come to the, 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 the uh, part of the program that I, well, I used to enjoy this, but now I'm on the receiving end today. This is our EMS word of the day, folks. And uh, you might recall last month, or excuse me, two months ago, I was giving the word. I really enjoyed giving the words. But today, uh, I'm going to be uh, receiving the word. So uh, my esteemed colleague, Chuck Humphrey, is has some words. And you folks can't see right now, but Chuck has a bit of a smirk on his face, so I'm I'm belted into my chair. Go ahead, Chuck. Give me right. give me your word and see if I can put okay. it into an EMS well, it's, context. It's actually a very timely word for what's in the news. I'll give you a little bit of a hint. Okay, so the word is sternerate. S T E R N U R A T E. Sternerate. There's a reason for this pause. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, would you like me to spell it for you phonetically? And, and, and I say this, Gary, because a funny story of a young man that works at QuickMed two weeks ago was trying on the phone to spell something and he didn't know the EMS spelling. So one of our clients quietly told me about this laughingly because young Ryan, Ryan Lopez, he's, our, he's a great young man, was trying to phonetically spell, and he was spelling something with the letters E and M, and he used elephant magnificent or something <laughs> like that. And, and not only did, did the EMS provider on the other end get a kick out of this, but his coworkers happened to hear him in the cubicle surrounding him. They started piling on with laughing and, and our client could hear that in the background. And, and so the other day I just had to poke at him and, and he was all embarrassed and, and it was all in good fun. But uh, so if you want, I'll spell it out with the, 
the usual phonetics that we use at EMS, if that will help. So the word is sternerate. Sternerate. I'm going to, I'll be okay with the, I'm going to hold off on this, uh, the phonetics. Thank you. So <laughs> um, here we go. So the ambulance service had a sternerate response to the football standby. So you're thinking it means kind of non-emergency. Yes. So, just uh, kind of um, lax, not lax, maybe that's not a good word. Maybe um, just laid back. Well, you know, in Family Feud, that X that comes up. <laughs> <laughs> you're not even a football field close, my friend. Well, but well, just so you know, you've blown a bunch of these Oh, two. boy, have I ever. <laughs> yes. And I'm probably going to do one in a few minutes. But Sterner rate's very timely, given our news. And that's because it means to sneeze. Comes from the Latin sternerate. Uh, and it means um, it's uh, it, it means literally uh, an itch of the nose, or extended into the medical term, it means to sneeze. Wow! So you can now say, "I have to sternerate," and nobody will know what you mean. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I've been fighting a little bit of a cold, so I've been sneezing around the house. So I'll right. let you guys know next episode on how that sternerate <laughs> word goes over at the Harvard house. Okay. <laughs> right. I just, you just got back from China. Please don't sternerate. Yes, oh, yes. absolutely. No <laughs> sternerating here. Yeah, yeah. You and stay on to, that cruise ship. And not to make light of the seriousness of the nature, but it's very timely. That's for sure. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I oh, think I've man. seen more people with masks on ever than I have in my life. <laughs> well, um, yeah. uh, sorry, Chuck. Sorry I let you down on that one. I apologize. But um, let's see. I, I think I think Ed has one to give to you, Chuck. Ed, am I, I correct? I do. I do, yeah. And this is actually very apropos of <laughs> some of the stories today that we've touched on. So I'm going to give you a little hint there, particularly the story that I shared. And the word is, Benignity, which is B-E-N-I-G-N-I-T-Y, benignity. Hmm. Well, the first thing I see is benign in the word. Um, hmm. Um, and you said it has, pertains to something we already talked about. Um, the politician expressed benignity to the subject matter at hand. So it's not an EMS response. That's well, not used in an EMS context. Well, I was thinking <laughs> in the context of our earlier conversation, you know, <laughs> the benignity towards our plight in EMS funding is off the charts. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know what, Chuck, I, I'll give you, that's a, that's close enough for government work. That's a pretty good one. So it is a good deed or favor, an instance of kindness. Um, okay. So benignities are born out of selfless devotion, much like our EMS providers who volunteer, as Gary pointed out, as well as the good folks in Detroit um, who showed a great act of benignity uh, in responding to that need in the community. By the ah, community I got gotcha. you. Okay. Good for you, Chuck. That's a good one. You got a gold star. Oh, yeah. I, good, I like good that. Good for you, Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but remember – Remember, Gary, yeah, we, we business development guys have to stick together. You're on the outcast <laughs> team there. Yeah, I get Gary will tell you, he's always, yeah, he's, always, he's always cleaning up our mess, right? Yeah. Chuck? <laughs> cleaning up our mess. Oh, boy. Yeah, thanks. Well, great. Uh, I think the, the scales were tilted a little bit on this, on this one today, but okay. We'll, we'll see what April brings, or brings around. You guys better watch out then. <laughs> hey, so um, one of the light spots of our broadcasts is always kind of EMS news of the offbeat. Uh, and I think, uh, Ed, you, did you say one or Chuck? Um, who has one? I, I have Ed, All right. whatever. <laughs> I've got one, but I, I really want to save mine for, for last because this is going to, mine is one of those goes, you're just hard to believe. But go, go ahead, ahead Chuck. Chuck. You got a good All right. one. Well, look, this resonated with me because I cut my teeth in EMS in, in rural responses. So in my early days before GPS and 
before we had 911. We had RD3 box 707 in Podunk, Pennsylvania. Okay, so you literally, your dispatch would be uh, go down such and such a road, turn right at the barn, left at the pig, and you'll see a group of cows, and that's where the patient is. I mean, literally sometimes that was. So from Colorado comes this story, and it's written actually by a patient who says, leaving the fast food drive through window, I am overwhelmed with a wave of nausea and dizziness. I managed to pull across several parking spaces and wait, hoping I'll feel better, but I don't. I think I might pass out and wish I'd throw up because that might make me feel better. Clearly, I can't drive, and I have no idea what was wrong. Dizzy, scared, and disoriented, I call 911. So the 911 dispatcher answers, 911, what's the address of your emergency? Me, I have no idea. I'm at the, and she named the fast food restaurant, on the corner of the highway and the cross street. But I need a specific address, ma'am, the 911 uh, dispatcher came back. Me, I can't give you a specific address. I'm in pain and I'm scared and I'm at, and she repeats the streets, please help me. 911 dispatcher, we cannot help you, ma'am, without a street address. Me, losing my cool completely. Okay, start at the hospital, drive north on the highway a few blocks. When you get to the major store, look east to your right and you will see a fast food place with a car parked across several spots. That's me. <coughs> You proceed. <laughs> she proceeds to write, funniest thing, they did find me. It turned out to be a kidney stone. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. I, the dispatcher followed his SOPs. You have to give him credit. but yeah, I, I, right. and, and I'm telling you guys, this was probably <laughs> the first 10 to 15 years of my experience. It, it just, that's the way you got your, your direction. So uh, kudos to anybody who now uses GPS for dispatch. Right. Well, that was a good one, Chuck. That's going to be tough that to beat. So, so I have one from across the pond. This one comes uh, from uh, near Auckland, New Zealand. And it goes downhill very fast, but just, I hope I can get through this. So, <laughs> A not-so-wise young man at a wildlife park makes the decision to jump in to the silverback gorilla's open habitat <laughs> while visiting the park. <sighs> and while in there, he chose to mimic the large male silverback gorilla by, uh, I guess, running around on all fours. <laughs> Of course, this called the attention of the park officials who came running, and uh, they made the decision for this individual's safety to sedate the large male silverback, which was in relatively close proximity to him. And I take it from reading the article, this gentleman just kept running back and back and forth in front of this gorilla. Again, the gorilla just sat there taking it all in. Um, so... They decided they were going to sedate the large male silverback gorilla and then go into the habitat and pull out this perpetrator uh, and take him away. Uh, sadly, <laughs> this is where we go. Sadly, the park official, through some level of miscommunication, became confused and inadvertently darted, shot the perpetrator with the dart. <laughs> Which dropped him like a bad habit. <laughs> to add insult oh, to, to an already big miscue, the male gorilla then approaches the fully sedated perpetrator and begins dragging him around the habitat, <laughs> including over rocks, branches, and through a large moat that was within the habitat area. Oh this went God. on until another park official came with, I guess, another dart and then sedated the gorilla once no. and for all. So uh, EMS it obviously was called, and uh, they arrived to treat the perpetrator who was removed from the habitat at this point, and luckily only suffered a fractured wrist and multiple abrasions over of most of his body. No, he was subsequently goodness. admitted for repair of the wrist fracture not to mention a psych evaluation. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
So, uh, like, first what off, in the like, world would possess someone what would to do possess? that? Yep. And you got to think uh, the guy with the gun, the you know, thinking like, yeah. did they tell me to shoot the gorilla or the bat or the perpetrator? And I'm, I'm sure there was a moment where he thought like, well, you know, the gorilla's not doing anything wrong. Let me just dart the bad guy. So oh my. Yeah, right. Yeah, Why they, should the gorilla get stuck over this guy doing yeah. stupid things? The article said that when they darted the, 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 the gentleman who walked into the thing, they said he dropped like a fly like i i mean you got to believe it's probably a four or five six seven hundred pound gorilla you know <laughs> yeah what's the dosage on that? yeah what's oh, the dosage oh uh, anyway um, um, uh, the question is did they say in the article g did they give him narcan afterwards <laughs> yeah, i was gonna say there was some explanation of what they what they gave him i'm not and it didn't say narcan uh, but uh, apparently they they reversed it somehow but um oh like oh my goodness hmm. like what are you thinking but yeah so you know i i decided on my google alerts to put in uh weird ems stories so That's anything that comes up as a weird ems story i'm getting now so uh, I'm sure I'll be bringing you more in the days and weeks and months ahead. So, well, listen, uh, we've pretty much exhausted our time together. Gentlemen, I've enjoyed uh, being with both of you and uh, enjoyed our time together. I hope our listeners have enjoyed this episode as well, too, amidst all the laughter. Um, we've had a good time of it. So, Ed, thank you for your uh Yeah, Ed, good. Thank support. you very much. Yeah, very good. Very informative. And, uh, of course, uh, thanks, Chuck, to you for all the help that you continue to be with these podcasts. So much appreciated. And, of course, to our listeners who, uh, uh, for some crazy reasons, tend to tune into this thing and, and listen to it. So we're glad of that. And uh, in the meantime, uh, feel free to uh, take part in listen to any of our podcasts. Uh, you can listen to them on Apple Pod, you know, by Apple Podcasts or iHeartRadio, search under Gordon Collar Podcast, or even Excuse My Medic, and you'll be able to find them. So uh, our next episode is scheduled for uh, April. So at this point, happy Easter to my colleagues, as well as yes, all to our to listeners you. out there. And uh, thank you all for taking time to join us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. And hey, one more thing. Be safe, Be safe out, safe out, out, there. There. out there. Yes, sir. In unison. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>